0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, disinformation is in the DNA of PR, according to a visiting expert from the UK who once worked in corporate communications here. She tells us it's now time for an urgent ethics upgrade in the fight against fake news. We also look at how coverage of the climate crisis this week clashed with news of pain at the petrol pumps, again, and also overshadowed worries about war in the Middle East. And we look at claims of splashing cash that sparked the backlash, all about Council's Christmas parties. But first, with the Rugby World Cup now underway, the All Blacks are shouldering the burden of New Zealanders' expectations, and so is the company that's bringing it to our screens. But the near panic in the press recently about Spark streaming the action this time round, Skewed the bigger picture about sport on screen in the future.
2: Kia ora, good evening. Relax and grab a beer. That's the advice from Steve Hansen to an expectant nation ahead of the All Blacks' attempt to win a third straight Rugby World Cup.
1: That was News Hub at Six last Thursday on the eve of the Rugby World Cup in Japan kicking off and grabbing a cold one was indeed the relaxing advice from the chilled out All Blacks coach.
2: You're looking relaxed. What's a
3: tip for all of New Zealand who are sitting back there feeling very anxious? Uh, We'll just grab a beer and just understand that the boys are training really well. Um, We've got a good plan that we want to put in place and uh, that they can't really control anything we do, so there's no point in them worrying about it. Just enjoy it for what it's going to be, a great tournament and, and a great game.
1: But meanwhile, some viewers back home were stressing out about watching his players live on the internet for the first time from Spark, famous for phones and internet connections, but fairly new at live sport. For the first time, the live coverage of the Rugby World Cup is mainly available online via an app for subscribers, with some key games screened live or delayed by TVNZ as well. And on the AM show the next day, the program's guests shared their stories of trying and failing to hook up their parents' PCs to the big screen. But on News Talk ZB at the same time, Mike
4: Hosking was upbeat in his Mark the Week slot. Spark Sports 7. Let's be optimistic. And let's say this will go like a dream. Let's say there will not be a complaint, the pictures will be brilliant, the coverage faultless, and we all gather on Monday, happy campers.
1: But in recent months, Mike Hosking has been one of the loudest voices piling the pressure on Spark to get it right and amplifying the fears they might not, as we'll hear. Now, As it happened, not every Spark Sparksport customer was a happy camper once push came to shove in Japan this weekend. The opening ceremony and opening match on Friday night seemed to go okay, though the news media website scraped up whatever social media gripes they could find in order to turn them into stories. But when the big numbers logged on for the All Blacks against South Africa last night... Users all over the country reported a suboptimal streaming experience, glitching, freezing, buffering and delays, sudden slumps in picture quality, and even that infuriating blank slate on the screen asking them to please try again later, words many felt that Spark itself should have taken on board for its whole Rugby World Cup experiment. Well, Spark had senior executives, including Chief Executive Jolie Hodson, on social media duty during the game, initially insisting there were no systemic problems, only issues limited to a tiny fraction of customers. But by halftime, they'd thrown in the towel and went for the fallback plan, switching the live coverage to TVNZ's Duke channel, where it was free for all. Now That guaranteed that the headlines today would be all about annoying their paying customers, And it was also a bit of a bummer for those in the middle of the movie on Duke, John Carpenter's movie, Ghosts of Mars. Mind you, even in that, not everything goes to plan either.
0: You got a plan B? Yeah, it's the same as plan A.
5: You got any fresh ideas?
2: Yeah, what we should have done in the first place.
1: the media have been sounding the alarm about Spark streaming the Rugby World Cup for months, partly because of another World Cup streaming fail across the Tasman
4: about a year ago. They keep saying we'll watch everything online in the future, but that hasn't gone so well for football fans planning to watch the World Cup in Australia. Telco Optus has the exclusive rights, but its streaming service has stopped working and it's had to
1: ask a TV channel to show the games. At the time, the media here seized on the possibility of that happening to Spark this year. But at that point, it wasn't clear exactly how Spark would deliver the Rugby World Cup, though soon after that they launched the app Spark Sport. Now Spark picked the US-based sports streaming platform provider called iStream Planet for this, which has done the Olympics, the NBA and Formula One in the past. When iStream Planet failed to live-stream the women's black sticks hockey game against Australia on Anzac Day, Spark said human error in the US was the problem, not the technology. But their hockey problem turned into a Mike Hosking problem when the technology stalled again at the grid for the Formula 1 season opener soon after.
4: Hosking! 724, so Spark, the future in some respects of how we view sport or an increasing amount of it, isn't ready this weekend for Formula 1. They bought the rights, but they can't deliver the way they want it. Their app is out. It doesn't work. That time, Mike Hosking summed up the Rugby World Cup Consumer Challenge like this. The whole experiment starts off with the hard yards of dragging a rugby-mad nation across the technological line and into a world we didn't necessarily ask to be in, so we have a room full of doubters.
1: Mike Hosking was right about all that, especially the grumpy technophobe's response, and he said that he hoped Spark would succeed with the Rugby
4: World Cup, but then heaped the pressure on them like this. They simply have to have it spot on. The clock is ticking... And week one, when the light went green, they stalled the engine. Now that was back in April. Since then, Spark has added the English
1: Premier League football to its roster, but the media has then seized on occasional glitches in the football
2: coverage as well. Live stream was effective for the Newcastle-United-Watford match. There were technical glitches during a Manchester United and Southampton game when the scum drew with the Saints. And the highlight packages for the eight games played on Sunday morning were late. Then when they did arrive, they had no audio. Not good. But Sparks' Jeff Latch was pretty
1: bullish when Newstalk ZB's Andrew Dickens asked him this.
2: On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being completely confident, 1 being scared witless, how are you feeling about your service during the Rugby World
1: Cup? A 10. Since then, Spark has launched a massive ad and PR campaign for its Rugby World Cup tournament pass. And with kickoff looming, articles ran across the media explaining just how to get it on the screen. And Spark is even now sponsoring a news show on Talk ZB.
2: It's Heather Duplessis-Allen Drive with Spark Sport, official broadcaster of Rugby World Cup 2019.
1: Not so much coverage of Spark's streaming problems on that show, strangely. But last week on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking was still not happy.
4: It's sort of not their fault that too many of us don't have a clue, but, and this is the critical corporate issue, it is their problem. If there was anger at the concept, wait till you see the anger if they can't deliver.
1: The same day on News Talk ZB, rural show The Country was stressed about suboptimal rural broadband.
3: For rural New Zealand, this is an accident waiting to
1: happen, but I hope I'm wrong. But just two days earlier, Spark Sport had had a soft launch, streaming a Japan versus South Africa game from Japan. And that night, Stuff reported that all went well. It felt just like thousands of other games I've watched over the years, its reporter said. But that wasn't mentioned the next day in Stuff's Sunday Star Times, under the headline, Are we heading for a Spark Sport rugby coverage debacle? The new technology
2: columnist for the paper, David Court, wrote this. Former UK Prime Minister David Cameron did a similar thing after leading the country into the nightmare that is Brexit. And just take a look at how that's going over there.
1: But while he was the only journalist to invoke Brexit and in all this, David Court wasn't the only one lacking confidence. A survey of 1,250 New Zealanders, commissioned by a broadband comparison service, made headlines last week when it found that 57% of them felt negative about streaming the World Cup. Now, it's not clear what that really means... If anything, but the media seized on it, and this finding.
0: Of the negative respondents, 31% said they were annoyed, 16% were angry, and 8% were devastated.
1: Well, Sadly, gutted was not one of the survey's options, but that prompted RNZ to call Sparks' Jeff Latch and ask him this.
2: In this particular survey that we're talking about, It says that just 11% of people who are planning on watching the World Cup say that they're extremely confident that it's going to go well on Spark Sport. So what can you say to the remaining 89% of people who aren't confident that you're going to deliver?
3: We at Spark Sport are really confident that we are going to deliver a terrific Rugby World Cup experience.
1: Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But what the media didn't do much of was actually examine the upgrades and the tweaks that Spark has made in recent months to make it much more likely that streaming will work for the majority of people who try it. In a presentation for the Telecom Users Association of New Zealand in August, Sparksport boss David Chalmers gave a pretty detailed breakdown of that, though not much of it made it into the media. And he also pointed out that after the embarrassing flop this episode, where the streaming of the Football World Cup last year in Australia didn't work, Optus has actually recovered rather well. It's now successfully streaming English and European football to a growing number of presumably satisfied customers across the ditch one year later. Now to do that, Optus had to outbid the dominant pay TV player across the ditch, Fox Sports, which is roughly the equivalent of Sky Sports here, for the rights. But the Opinion Compare company last week concluded that the main message of its survey here was this.
0: When it comes to watching the All Blacks in the Rugby World Cup, the message is clear. If it isn't broke, don't fix it.
1: Now that's hardly a surprising finding when the media have amplified people's fears that streaming would be complicated and unreliable. But for those who are not paying a premium to Sky TV to see the All Blacks play live outside the Rugby World Cup every four years, the system is broke. Sky needs the All Blacks more than Spark and is reportedly preparing a huge bid to hold on to the rights for All Black and Super Rugby because locking those in is still critical to a business model that's still based on hundreds of thousands of people paying a lot for bundles of other channels they might not want. And this points to the fact that the big picture here is not snag-free streaming of the Rugby World Cup, but choice in live sport on screen into the future.
0: Good, good evening. Kiwi motorists have been rushing to fill up their tanks today over fears of an imminent price rise. Drone attacks on two major oil facilities in Saudi Arabia have taken out more than 5% of the world's daily supply.
2: The US has blamed Iran with Donald Trump tweeting the US is locked and loaded. Iran has denied involvement but says it's ready for a fully fledged war.
3: That was how News Hub at 6 began its bulletin last Monday night. And as scary as war breaking out in the Middle East might be, it was the thought of higher petrol prices that NewsHub decided was the real story.
2: Kiwis rushing to the pump today, trying to beat a potential price increase. It's expensive as it is, man. I can't afford it.
3: Yeah,
5: it's hideous. It's really, really unaffordable.
3: It was an almost identical scenario across on TVNZ.
5: Tonight on 1 News, the price of oil jumps after drone attacks on Saudi Arabia. As a global oil shortage looms, what does it mean for Kiwis at the petrol pump?
3: And there was the obligatory fearful motorist interviewed from the front lines.
0: Fears the price of petrol may rise fast has got
3: some Kiwis rushing to fill up. Like I've watched the news a lot and then I was reading about it the other day and was like I better fill it up now. TVNZ's coverage did include this 11-second clip from security analyst Paul Buchanan on what it could mean for those a little closer to the real action. If the Saudis want to strike Iran over this, or if the Americans want to strike Iran, um, that's a whole different kettle of fish that'll make Iraq look like kindergarten. But then it was back to the only angle that really interested the journalists the price of oil.
0: This is being described as the biggest single shock to oil fields, even bigger than Saddam Hussein's attack on them during the first Gulf War.
5: Already we've seen, I think, an impact on oil prices. I believe we'll continue to see that flow flow through to the fuel market.
0: As politicians reacted, so did markets. The price of Brent crude oil rose 20% when markets opened, but dropped slightly throughout the day.
3: Earlier that day, the New Zealand Herald website ran a story under the headline.
0: Petrol prices could skyrocket to $3 a litre after Saudi Arabia attacks.
3: The story began.
0: New Zealand petrol prices could reach a nightmare $3 a litre following attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities, an economist says...
3: The economist being quoted was Cameron Bagri, who had been interviewed earlier that morning on Newshub's AM show. International oil prices at the moment are around 60 bucks a barrel. Yes, yeah, so if you look at the imported... Component of the petrol price, it's around 75 cents. So let's keep the maths sort of simple. Let's say that oil prices go from 60 to 120 dollars a barrel; they, they basically double. Yeah, that imported component will go from 75 cents to $1.50. Hmm. And you put tax on top of that, it's close to three bucks. Well, yeah, that's that's three dollars a like, litre. That's the horror scenario. But once in that, that's that's a scenario. We need to be careful here about chicken little hmm. sort of stuff because yes, we're taking an awful lot of global production out of the supply chain, but there's some pretty ample global stocks around the globe. So if you look at America, for example. America's got $1.3 billion worth of reserves. Cameron Baggery's advice that journalists should be careful not to claim the sky was falling in was ignored in favour of dramatic headlines on both the News Hub and New Zealand Herald sites, highlighting Baggery's use of the phrase horror scenario. Meanwhile, the real horror scenario, a war that could potentially kill hundreds of thousands, was barely touched on. Gordon Campbell, in his werewolf column on the Scoop website, was a rare exception.
2: It speaks volumes about our priorities that the world now seems more aghast at the disruption and rising price of their petrol supplies than it has been by the indiscriminate bombing of schools, hospitals and civilian centres by Saudi and Emirates forces over the past four years. In addition, the air attacks carried out by the Saudis on Yemen's water treatment plants have triggered a cholera epidemic that's cost nearly 10,000 lives, even as a port blockade has prevented medical supplies from reaching the areas affected.
3: And the ghastly human price of the ongoing conflict wasn't the only angle being all but ignored by the media. About this time last year, stuffed journalist Charlie Mitchell wrote an opinion piece under the headline,
0: New Zealand's busy bickering about petrol prices while the world burns.
3: Mitchell was making the point that on the same day the International Panel on Climate Change released a report on the urgency of reducing carbon emissions, the Prime Minister was attempting to talk down the price of petrol.
2: Within an hour of the report's release, the Prime Minister was talking about fossil fuels at her post-cabinet press conference. Jacinda Ardern wasn't talking about how to stop using them, which the IPCC report made abundantly clear needed to happen rapidly, but how to burn them more cheaply.
3: This year's media frenzy over a possible increase in the price of oil coincides with covering climate change now. A week of climate change coverage that more than 250 news organisations around the world have signed up to, including TVNZ, News Hub, Stuff, the New Zealand Herald, RNZ, the Otago Daily Times, the spin-off and Newsroom. But none of those outlets have shown much interest in the climate implications of a major price hike in the cost of oil, or for that matter the impacts of an all-out war in the Middle East. It seems likely a massive price hike would see a drop in emissions as motorists cut back on their driving. And those emissions are highly significant, as Nelson architect Peter Olin-Renshaw pointed out in an op-ed on the Stuff website this week. He said that emissions from road transport in New
2: Zealand had grown by 93% since 1990. Surprisingly, the lion's share of this jump was not from heavy transport, but from cars and light trucks. Somehow, to ensure a safe climate, we need to reduce all emissions to net zero by 2050. Cutting carbon from road transport will be crucial. Olin
3: Renshaw said part of the answer was more people using public transport, more people walking and cycling and more car sharing, all of which seem likely to save individuals more than any increase in costs we're likely to see as a result of the ramping up of tensions in the Middle East. The Intercept, one of the 250 news organisations taking part in covering Climate Now, tackled the question of the carbon implications of war in an article titled
0: War on the World. Industrialised militaries are a bigger part of the climate emergency than you know.
3: The possible fallout from the drone attack on the Saudi oil wells is truly horrifying, but not because motorists could find themselves spending a few extra dollars at the pump. Jeremy
1: Rose reporting on how reports of pain at the petrol pumps here eclipsed worries about war in the Middle East this week and the climate crisis right across the planet.
2: Facebook has announced a series of changes in an attempt to stop hate speech and extremism being spread on its platform. The social media giant plans to de-radicalise users who search for white supremacy pages by redirecting them away from that page.
1: That was TVNZ's breakfast show on Wednesday, and Facebook's announcement of new moves to limit exposure to extremist content was headline news right across New Zealand media that morning. This was widely described as a result of Facebook's commitment to the Christchurch call, which it signed up to back in May. But the announcement also came the day before a US government hearing in Washington, D.C., at which executives from Facebook, Google and Twitter were all about to be grilled about how they handle violent content. Last week, the boss of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, flew in here for a quick chat with the Prime Minister behind closed doors, all about the Christchurch call. One big problem for Twitter these days is fake accounts, or bots, which are highly effective in spreading misinformation, the kind of malicious, misleading stuff, often called fake news, which is damaging democracy itself in countries where Twitter has a lot of users. Now, Earlier this month on MediaWatch, I spoke to Dr Melanie Bunce about that. She's the author of a new book called Broken Estate, all about problems threatening the fourth estate these days. And she told me that misinformation was one of those problems, but it's less of a worry here than it is elsewhere in the
2: world.
0: We are protected from kind of fake news in that narrow sense of people creating fake websites and fabricating whole stories. This one like the the Pope endorsing Trump in 2016, it was very popular. We're protected from those ones um, where people are really trying to make money um, by sending that news around.
1: Coincidentally, another London-based expat expert said something similar in a recent talk at Auckland University with the grim title, Why the Trump Era Could Last for 30 Years.
3: In it, London School
1: of Economics politics professor Robert Wade said this.
3: Many of the forces that are driving nationalistic populism in the world are also evident in New Zealand, notably persistent and fairly high levels of inequality. But it's not led to the country's leaders trying to mobilise people's grievances in the way that it has in Europe and America. Again, good news for us, if he's right. But last week, a
1: visiting colleague of his at the London School of Economics gave a talk at Waikato University in which she warned us it's not just political leaders who are seeking to misinform us. Her talk at Waikato University was called Organised Lying and Professional Legitimacy – Public Relations Accountability in the Disinformation Debate. Dr Lee Edwards argued that the role of the professional PR industry has been largely overlooked – That blunt-sounding concept of organized lying isn't a new one. The German-American philosopher Hannah Arendt coined the phrase in the early 1970s to describe how political parties co-opted advertising tactics to create what she called the consistent substitution of truth. Now, obviously, that's a long way before modern political spin and social media got involved, but Dr Edwards told me it's still relevant today in the context of fake news and professional public relations
5: working out what's credible and what isn't and where we should challenge politicians who are presenting um, ideas to us and where we can accept what they say as a reasonable version of, of what's happening. I think that's much more difficult because there are far more players in the mix and they are players who don't really have the interest of politics at heart. A lot of them are really presenting fake news, and I know that you've talked about fake news on the programme before, but they, you know, they're delivering fake news because they get audiences because those audiences deliver money, and that's the primary motivation. Stories about the world and how it works are not really designed always to enable us to engage with the world in a way that helps us understand it better they are designed to enable us to engage with that particular producer of news so that new producer of news or stories can make some money and so that's where the kind of the world of fake news if you like kind of bumps up against this organized lying problem if you like
1: but you've also been looking at where professional public relations companies and the communications business is in the middle of this in fact you've got a line in your paper and um, disinformation is part of the dna of pr um that's quite strong
5: yeah, it is quite strong. Yeah, it is quite strong. And I think, um, I don't think the PR industry uh, would necessarily like that. In the debate about fake news and disinformation, the public relations industry has kind of sidestepped, certainly in the UK, which is the small study that I did, they're not really looking at the situation and acknowledging the fact that the techniques that they use on a day-to-day basis, are being used in these other contexts to distort the way we understand the nature of public life and our role within public life. Once you take responsibility, you can then say, OK, well, what should we do about that? How do we ring-fence, if you like, the kind of work that we believe is appropriate from the kind of work that should not be allowed to be associated with our profession?
2: So
1: you think they've, they've got away with pushing the stuff on behalf of...
5: Yeah, I'm not saying that PR that the average PR and comms company is involved in doing fake news. That's a different thing. Mm. What I am saying is that the techniques that they use are used by fake news practitioners. Some of whom may be associated with the PR industry. Some of them may be in a separate kind of kind of company who would never say that they were PR. So Cambridge Analytica, for example, they they didn't say they were a PR company, but the techniques that they use are absolutely standard marketing and PR techniques. And so my argument is that when we look at the nature of fake news, you can't. Can't simply say, "Oh, it's these strange actors who are all hmm. de- determined to destroy democracy." We can't just say it's just them. We have to then look at what they're using, what techniques are they using, and where have they got those techniques from? And, and then look at where those origins are, and get the people who use them on a day-to-day basis to, to take responsibility for that, for the fact that what they do and what they stand by is now being used in a corrupted environment. So, who are, who are, are those people that are it.
1: using it on a day-to-day basis?
5: Well, those are the PR agencies. You know, those are the it's the PR industry that uses oh, on behalf those of their clients. On behalf of their clients. My point in the paper is that um, those techniques get transplanted. And there are instances in the PR industry where um, communication is used unethically. Um, in the paper, there are some examples of a similar farm lobby in, in Israel that also kind of communicated in a way that simply distorted the truth to, um, to, for patients. You know, Bell Pottinger in the UK was expelled from the PRCA because uh, of the role it played in fomenting racial um, discord in South Africa. So there are not just historical but current examples of where public relations techniques are used unethically. And the the narrative that professions put forward, um, that the PR profession puts forward is that, you know, they themselves are truthful and honest and they are the harbingers of Truth and trustworthy communication, but the history and some current practice shows that that's not always the case, and you have to face up to that and do something about it.
1: But wouldn't that be because their clients are telling them we need you to project a positive image of us, whether it's it's truthful or not, or leaving out a whole load of things which aren't good about our company or our products? Just uh, that's your job. Focus on the good, make us look good.
5: But they are also uh, people with enormous power to shape the world and the way that we see ourselves within that world. And regardless of whether you work for a client, you have to take that other responsibility, that social and cultural responsibility, very seriously. There is, I think, a limit to saying we do whatever the client wants us to do. You have to be able to turn around and say, actually, if we do this and think beyond the actual campaign, the impact of that campaign is going to make a difference in these ways to these kinds of people. Is that something we want to realise or not?
1: And you mentioned here uh, in the paper that you've looked at the UK uh, to show, on the one hand, diverting attention away from what they've done in the past or their clients have done, and on the other hand saying, actually, we're the agents of reliable information, trust us. You can't do both of those things, can you?
5: Well, Well, you can if nobody's looking at you. I was interested in how they um, position themselves in the debate about fake news and disinformation. How are they commenting on it, what responsibility they're taking, etc. And when I looked at the statements and publications that they were putting out about fake news, it was really interesting to me that they didn't really engage in debates about the democratic impact of fake news, um, the social impact of falsities. They, They did talk about the dangers that it presented, but they very quickly moved to the danger that it presented to clients and to brands and not so much to society. What that enabled them to then do is to create an argument that said, we are the people who understand and conduct ethical and trustworthy communication. What we need to do, our role in this debate, is to promote ethics, to promote our ethics and promote our trustworthiness and deliver the kinds of services that helps to insulate clients and audiences from the impact of fake news. Now, for me, that was a translation of this kind of social dilemma and political dilemma into a business opportunity. Um, and it also serves the additional purpose of them um, arguing that they are ethical and truthful in all ways. And again, if you go back to the historical record, if you look at current practices, those are that's not always the case. The biggest companies in public relations, Bell Pottinger, Hill & Knowlton, other companies, have been revealed to be duplicitous in what they're doing. It means that that kind of behaviour, if it's not sanctioned, it's certainly in some circumstances accepted, even among the most powerful operators.
1: Well, you mentioned there about the primacy of the client's needs for the PR company or communication specialists who are representing them. and um, You say here in the paper, industry codes of practice position the client relationship as the priority rather than the public interest. Um, and the importance of public relations, contribution to democracy, freedom freedom of speech, the public interest, professional standards, they're mentioned but are vague and unenforceable. Um, mm. Now, he, here in New Zealand, we have the uh, public relations uh Institute of New Zealand as the umbrella body. Their code of ethics does say uh, we serve the public interest by acting as responsible advocates for those we represent uh, and where there's uh, under the heading of loyalty, we are faithful to those who we represent while honouring our obligations to serve the public interest. Does that strike you as any stronger than the codes of conduct you've mentioned there I think mostly in the UK.
5: The, the public interest isn't defined I suppose and, and or spelt out and, and also I think the other thing that's interesting is that the public interest is linked to client interests as if they're one and the same thing perhaps or certainly as if you can't have one without the other. And sometimes, of course, the interests of society go against the interests of clients or are indifferent to the interests of clients. And then that level of generality that they have means that if you are a practitioner where you have, for example, a, uh, your pharma client saying, you know, we want to really push this drug, so just send out this message, you know, we're not going to tell anyone about the test results, for example, uh, or the trial test results, you know. And that, so then, but they know that from, from a societal perspective that that's, that's wrong. W- what do they do? Where's the advice that says to them, okay, in this situation, Public interest comes first, client interest comes second. You know, their job is on the line, the, the account is on the line. Where? What's the process that they are able to use to make decisions? And I think industry associations, again, this is about really needing to look at the situations that they have in the organisations who are their members and say, OK, these are the dilemmas that, are people, that people are facing. How can we as an industry association and as an industry more broadly start to really pick apart situations where the techniques that we promote are being used inappropriately, unethically and create you know, no-go areas for those situations? And how can we therefore protect some of the good practice that goes on? Because communications is still important. It is an important industry. I don't have any argument with that.
1: Well, the public relations industry in this country uh, often say um, when it's pointed out, for example, that public relations and communication professionals vastly outnumber journalists who have a different interpretation of the public interest. They say, look, you know, you misunderstand us. This isn't all about spinning an image to the public on behalf of a paying client. You know, we're there working internally with them to say, actually, no, that could compromise your Tell you so. so, no, don't do this.
5: Yes, I think that does happen. This is the role of the PR person as the strategic advisor, and that's very much something that all PR practitioners want to have as part of their account. But but the point is exactly as you've described it the, the, the advice that they give is based on the potential reputational, reputational damage to the organization and not just the public interest. There is a point at which the conversations need to include an argument that says if you do this, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, it will have this kind of impact on society and we don't think that that is appropriate and so we can't help you do that. There has to be a gap in practice that allows those kinds of conversations to happen. The risk then is always taken on by the agency or by the practitioner and um, you know, chances are there's another agency or practitioner behind the wings waiting to get that client because maybe it, <laughs> the it's account. a lucrative client you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so maybe you don't win but nonetheless I think those conversations are really important without having to constantly refer back to the reputation or the revenue.
1: And then the Conclusion of your paper, you say public relations is theoretically capable of contributing to public imagination and thereby to the quality of intersubjective judgment. So, a bit of a complex concept there, I imagine. Uh, but it must, uh, to do so, it must differentiate between disinformation, uh, the distortion of facts, uh, such that a balanced debate is no longer possible, and persuasion based on verifiable evidence. So, is that at the crux of it? That they actually have to say, okay, okay, client, we see what you what you want to project show us the evidence before we agree to push that message out into the public?
5: Internally, within client conversations, yes, absolutely, but also externally. So making sure, for example, that, um, again, in the story you covered around uh, Medicines NZ, you know, that it's very clear who news stories come from, where they're from, who is placing them, what's the potential vested interest that is, that is driving that particular message. That's really important. But it has to then position its communication always in terms of the broader public interest, general, generalizable interests that, that underpin public life. That
1: was Dr. Lee Edwards, Associate Professor in Media and Communications at the London School of Economics in the UK, formerly a corporate communications person here in New Zealand. Last week at Waikato University, she gave a talk called Organised Lying and Professional Legitimacy, public relations accountability in the disinformation debate, and you can hear more from her about what she sees as the urgent need for an ethics upgrade in the public relations industry in the online version of that interview. You can find that on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, on the MediaWatch podcast feed, or the MediaWatch section of the RNZ app. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, with less than a month to go till the local elections, the news media are doing their bit to cover the contests and elevate the issues which matter around the country. And last weekend, News Hub revealed it had crunched the numbers on just how much local bodies spent on Endeavour bashes for their staff last year, with an exclusive online report headlined like this.
0: Cash splash! Councils spend more than 100k on 2018 Christmas parties.
1: Blimey, which councils were blowing six figures on their own festive knees ups? Well, none, as it turned out. News Hub had found that the total cost of Christmas parties for staff spent by all the councils up and down the country was at least $106,000. Now, there was also pictorial evidence of this sort of spending too in NewsHub's online exclusive. For example, an image of the hula hoops and rubber ducks, which were among the toys and games hired by Hawke's Bay Regional Council, and a picture of an ice cream cake and what appears to be a cherry on the top of it can clearly be seen in the picture which is marked supplied. Act Party leader David Seymour told NewsHub.
2: Voters have a big opportunity this October to turf out people who are there to just waste other people's money. And he said he was disappointed
1: but not surprised by the spending. But disappointed and surprised was the response on social media when NewsHub released this scoop last weekend. Some said the real news was just how little cash had been splashed on tens of thousands of employees nationwide. Another person made this point to News Hub on Twitter.
0: It also has nothing to do with local elections. Councillors and mayors don't control the operating budgets of councils, management does.
1: Good point. Another person asked on Twitter just how much NewsHub spends on Xmas Do's for You lot. Now, NewsHub is part of a privately owned company, so the bill for their Christmas bashes is none of our business. But one of its shows, NewsHub Nation, is funded by the taxpayer to the tune of just under $1 million via New Zealand On Air. And for its last episode each year, it does throw a Christmas party get-together for an episode that's filmed for broadcast and sold to viewers like this.
0: It's time to put on a festive costume. It's more ridiculous. And take a break from heart-hitting politics. And say goodbye to my credibility as well.
5: And celebrate an incredible year. Yeah, with a bunch of politicians. Join us tomorrow morning for the News Hub Nation Christmas special. Are you coming, Grumpy?
0: I have to.
1: It's with Santa Claus in my contract. (laughs) Now, having paid for coverage of politics, viewers might not actually want News Hub to take a break from it. Four weeks from Christmas, with Parliament still sitting, and film a Christmas party with its contributors. They're always held at central Auckland venues, with snacks and drinks laid on for a cast of, if not hundreds, then dozens of the politicians, journalists and pundits who appear on the show often throughout the year. So we asked News Hub this week just how much cash including public cash, is splashed out on this. We've had no reply from them yet. Now, Maybe that's something we could also be exclusively revealing after an Official Information Act request. After all, we know journalists hate it when newsworthy information is withheld just because it might be embarrassing. That's all we have for you for Media Watch this weekend. The Media Watch team will be back again, though, at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.